This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Let's talk about um, some differences, Blair, between you, a licensed insolvency trustee, and those credit counselors that we mm-hmm. hear and see so much about. Yeah. There's some key words, terms certainly in the, in the business. It'd be great to sort of go through them so that we figure out what exactly they mean, because often they're way out of people's wheelhouses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's so go. Let's start. Let's go through it all today. Good. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- uh, well, let's talk about first uh, debt settlement agencies. I know mm-hmm. that's a term that gets thrown around quite a bit. Yeah. So if you're looking for help with your debt, you're going to find a number of folks that are out there. You know, one is a licensed insolvency trustee, another's a credit counselor. We're going to talk about those. But a third to keep an eye out, and this is almost like kind of a caveat emptor. Be very careful uh, when you deal with this. Is called debt settlement agencies. They sound and, very good. Well, we all want our debt settled. Right? right? And, you know, agency sounds official, but, you know, that's that's about it. The words are it there. Um, because essentially what these folks do um, is they tell you, don't pay any of your debts. So stop paying all of your creditors, you know, credit cards, MasterCard, Visa, all that stuff. And instead pay us instead as a debt settlement agency. Pay our fee each month. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take part of the money that you pay to us and we're going to put it aside to eventually make a settlement offer of, you know, maybe 10 or 20% of the debt in full payment. Now, usually they tell you this is probably going to take a couple of years. So you stop paying those creditors for a couple of years. You start putting money in our account and then eventually we'll get your debt settled. The problem yeah. is that most of the time your creditors won't wait a couple of years. Right. You know, they'll either consider to sue you or harass you or start to take your wages. Um, and there's no guarantee they'll ever accept any offer. So the debt settlement agency, if they can't make a deal, they don't really care because they're getting their fees either way. So you've got to be careful. A lot of these are U.S.-based um you know, corporations that are running debt settlement services. Uh, the province of BC has started to put in, you know, more stringent consumer protection legislation, but in general, be very careful when there's debt settlement. And even if there's consumer protection in place, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that will uh, impact uh, an American-based That's operation. Right. Yeah, good luck holding them accountable. Mm-hmm. And and that whole regulation thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes people go, oh, too much regulation in the mm-hmm. day, but at the same time, you need folks to pay attention to what others are doing, especially when it is with money and my Mm. money or your money. Oh yeah, I've had a number of folks and some of them have been senior citizens who couldn't afford to be defrauded, who were defrauded by US-based debt settlement agencies that actually outbound called them, somehow got their name on you know, a mailing list or a phone list or something and said, we're going to solve your problems. And one lady said, you know, I thought it was an answer to my prayers and all they did was take money for nothing. Sure. And answer to her prayers, absolutely, because they, they they know how to talk to you. They know all the right words and they know how to uh, move you in, in their direction. Yeah. So credit counselors then, what's the difference there. Yeah. So essentially what a credit counselor can do is there's more regulation. Now there's still, you know, no set qualifications and we'll go through all of that, but they are provincially regulated and credit counselors, essentially they're acting on behalf of the people that you owe money to with the idea that they want to get a hundred percent of the debt repaid 
but they're going to be able to give you a break on the interest and give you some good financial counseling, some good tools to move forward. Okay. So if you're in a situation where you know you can't pay all the debt back with interest, but you know you can pay all the debt back if they would just stop charging the interest each month, and you don't have any government debt because government debt absolutely will not work with a credit counselor. But if you've just got a bit of credit card debt, you need a break on the interest. That's typically where a credit counselor can help you out. And there's one of the, the weaknesses with credit counselors because they don't have that authorization mm-hmm. to deal with government debt. That's where they fall short compared to going to a licensed insolvency trustee. Exactly, Elaine. And that's another point too, is because they don't have the ability to use federal law, uh, whatever deal a credit counselor works out, it's an individual deal with each debt. And if you've got five debts, hopefully they can get all five of them to freeze the interest, but there's no guarantee of that. So, you know, someone could opt out, they could start to sue you separately, uh, which is totally different from what you could get when you're working with a licensed insolvency trustee. Yeah. And do you want to touch on that just a little bit, what a licensed insolvency trustee can do for you? Yeah. So an an LIT for short, uh, we used to be called bankruptcy trustees or trustees in bankruptcy, but the government said about a year ago, that's scaring people away. And what we do is a lot broader than just a bankruptcy. So for two thirds of people that come to see me, um, I'm helping them file a consumer proposal. And a consumer proposal, it's a deal where you avoid a bankruptcy, you stop all of the interest on the debt, and you reduce it down to what you can afford. So that's a huge difference with credit counseling. With credit counseling, you've got to pay 100% of the debt back, whereas with a consumer proposal, you usually pay back a third of the debt or a quarter of the debt or or something like that. Um, So one third, sorry, two thirds of what I do is help people with consumer proposals. The other third is if the situation is so dire and, you know, even paying back a third or a quarter of the debt is not going to be possible, that's when we consider a personal bankruptcy. So in Canada, only a trustee is empowered to file a personal bankruptcy or to file a consumer proposal. A lawyer can't do it. A credit counselor can't do it. No one else has that power other than a trustee. This the, We're going to stick uh, go back to uh, credit counseling because I think this is a really important piece of it. Mm-hmm. There's two different kinds of uh, credit counselors out there. Yeah. Uh, there's a for-profit and a not-for-profit, yeah. which I was surprised to learn. Yeah, and I would say don't be misled um, it is the headline here. Um, just because something is a not-for-profit doesn't necessarily mean it's an altruistic, you know, out for the common good, you know, there's no self-interest there, and um, credit counselors are, are no different. So I would suggest to you that there's no difference between a for-profit or a not-for-profit credit counselor. In fact, sometimes a not-for-profit credit counselor actually has a conflict of interest that a for-profit credit counselor might not have. And the key piece, again, dealing with the credit counselor, and we're sort of repeating ourselves just a little bit here, mm-hmm. but they can't deal with the big stuff like income tax That's if right. you're if you're uh, late or haven't filed that and you owe student loans, ICBC, MSP, those key, really important pieces, mm-hmm. they can't do a thing for you. Yeah, the best analogy I would use for a credit counselor, and you know, this is a fact, is it's a collection agency. So credit counselor, they're very, you know, nice, touchy-feely, they'll say all the right words, but at the end of the day, they are funded by the people that you owe money to with the idea that they want to get all of the debt repaid. So if you're in the province of Ontario, the Credit Counseling Society of BC, which is a not-for-profit unit here, um, they're registered as a collection agency in Ontario doing the exact same thing. So forgetting about all the advertising, you are dealing directly with a collection agency when you're dealing with a credit counselor. And they and they, they don't have the knowledge or expertise or education uh, to be even to be able to do that work. Or if they do, they're not it's not demanded of them mm-hmm. to have that. Yeah, there's been a, a number of media stories that have said, you know, for the biggest credit counselor 
officers in Canada, there's no set qualifications. There's no regulatory body. Um, you know, there's no dispute resolution. So, you know, obviously they care about their reputation. So they they generally want to do well by their folks. Um, but if something goes wrong, you've got nobody you can appeal to essentially. Great. So the, again, the difference between them and mm-hmm. an LIT, a licensed insolvency trustee, yeah. big difference. Oh, I'm, I'm regulated um, six ways to Sunday, so to speak. So my license comes from Industry Canada. Um, I'm an officer of the court. Anything that I do is subject to court review. It's subject to my regulator, the superintendent of bankruptcy, making sure um, that I'm administering the law correctly. Because you can imagine in a bankruptcy situation, the reason, or a consumer proposal, the reason I'm there is because people aren't getting paid in full. And people that don't get paid in full have a lot of concerns and they want to make sure a process is followed. So any trustee that you deal with is going to make sure they follow what the law says, follow the process. And you can and you can do that and the thousand or so LITs across the country can do that because you have the education and, mm-hmm. and the experience and the knowledge to do that. And that's a big difference, right? Like you've actually mm-hmm. gone to school uh, to know how to do all this. Yeah. And one of the, the things I'm most proud about in, in the job too um, is I'm required to be neutral. I'm required to be impartial, agnostic, whatever word you want to use about the solution that people take. So my job when someone comes into the door is I need to understand their situation. I need to understand what are their debts, what are their assets, what's the family situation, what's the budget, but the options that they choose I'm required not to be self-interested. So I have to explain to them, if you do credit counseling, here's what it looks like, here's the pros and the cons. If you do a bankruptcy or a proposal, same type of thing, and then it's up to the person to make that decision. I find if you go directly to a credit counselor, what you're going to walk out with is typically the credit counselor's product because otherwise they don't make any fees from that. And again, there's no requirement that they be neutral or impartial. I'm required to be neutral and impartial. If someone walks in and they don't need my help, I'll be quick to refer them to someone else. And if you have a problem problem with either uh, a licensed insolvency trustee or a credit counselor or whatever. I mean, there's actually bodies that that regulate and look after, Mm -hmm. look after me going to see someone like you. Yeah, it's so funny, Elaine, because when I have this discussion in my office with folks, you know, people, you know, consistently the jaws drop. They're like, really, this is a collection agency that's advertising this way. And, you know, really, I went to the, to, you know, see a credit counselor and they didn't tell me about a proposal or when they told me about a proposal, they made it sound like, you know, it was a way worse thing than what they were offering when in reality, it's quite a bit better. You know, people were just shocked to know that the difference between a debt management plan where you pay back 100% of the debt with a credit counselor um, and a consumer proposal where you pay back a third or a quarter of the debt, the only difference is the amount that you pay back. The actual credit rating impact is exactly the same. So for someone with full information, why would you choose to pay back 100% of the debt unless you're fully able to do so without hardship? Then yes, go for it. But a lot of folks that I deal with, they just weren't aware that a consumer proposal would give them the same credit rating hit, but save them a ton of money. Something else too that you said earlier, uh, and and I'd like to go into it just a little bit more, Mm -hmm. about talking about the connection between the credit counseling societies or the credit counseling bodies and the creditors. Mm -hmm. And there's often... Do we say 100% of the time or do we just say often a connection between those two bodies? Well, I'd say almost always. So I've, I've seen a few credit counselors where they're strictly private, you know, they're fee for service and they don't receive anything back from creditors. Um, but for the vast majority of credit counselors, and I encourage people to do their own research, you know, go on CRA's website or approach the credit counselors and ask them for their financial disclosures. Uh, you'll see the vast majority, 70%, 80% plus um, of the dollars that come into the credit counseling um, organization 
organizations are typically funded by creditors. So again, if I'm always thinking, well, you know, who's pulling the strings? To me, it's the person that's providing the funds. And that's why when you deal with a credit counselor, you may not be getting your best objectives tackled. You might be getting the creditor's best objectives, which is get all of the money back. Whereas you guys, the LITs, the Licensed Insolvency Trustees, you're kind of Switzerland in all of this. That's you're a good very, way to put very it. neutral. Yeah. Very neutral. You know, the way I describe it sometimes is I'm like a referee. So I want you to understand the rules of the game. However you choose to, you know, use those rules, as long as you're staying with in the lines, I'm okay with that. So if I explain the rules are for a proposal, you're going to pay back a third, be clearly um, you know, open with all your disclosures, and you do that, that's all a trustee's role is, is to help you access the system. I like the fact that you mentioned too that it's really important for folks to do their own research, yeah. to really investigate the processes that are out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I encourage everyone to do that. I love it, Elaine. Often after our shows, I'll get a few messages throughout the weeks of people saying, oh, I heard this on the, on the show, just want to clarify and things like that. Everything we're saying here, you can verified online. You can give me a call at Sands and Associates. We're happy to talk about this stuff. Now, if any of this information resonates with you or you've heard something that you think, oh, I'd like to know more about that. First of all, the website for Sands and Associates, sands-trustee.com. It's terrific. It's got a ton of frequently asked questions, very easy to read and and understand. If you'd like to get that free consultation, also very easy to do. The number is 1-800-661-3030 to get that free consultation consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Budgets, budgets, budgets. I know they're the most important thing to do, uh, sometimes the hardest thing to do for people, especially when it comes to a household budget. Uh, but I would think that it's probably a pretty good place to start, Blair, if you're, if you can't figure out where all your money's going each month. Yeah, you know, we often say at Sands and Associates, it's the foundation of having control over your finances. And, you know, a budget's a plan, it's a story, you know, it's a goal, and it's the old adage, if you don't know where you're going, well, any path is going to get you there. So it's really difficult for you to achieve financial goals unless you're budgeting each month, you know, you're, you're tracking your spending, uh, and you're seeing the insights that, you know, otherwise would just be missed in the, in the hustle and bustle of everyday life, of paying electronically for things, um, you know, of regular subscriptions on your credit cards. Really difficult to monitor everything unless you do take a bud- or unless you do make a budget. Uh, it's really one of the foundations of when we work with somebody uh, in either a bankruptcy or a proposal, the government mandates that they attend two financial counseling sessions uh, one of them is focused on credit rebuilding, but the other is very focused on budgeting, of trying to understand where does the money come from, where does it go each month, what are the gaps, what are the adjustments. And a lot of people find, even after they finish the bankruptcy or a proposal, you know, where they're not mandated to keep a budget, they still continue with that behavior, whether it's on an app or a spreadsheet or just you know a sheet of paper on a monthly basis, because it's just good financial hygiene. It just helps to make sure you're going to stay out of trouble. And I just want to throw in here, too, you know, uh, being able to manage money or, or have good financial skills is not something that we automatically know. And we even get very little. I mean, I don't know what today uh, the situation is, but in terms of information on education on it, uh, we didn't we didn't all get that information at the start. 
Yeah, I, I don't think anybody here would, or anybody who's listening would say, hey, you know, I got a really great grounding in financial literacy when I went to school. You know, we learned quadratic equations and calculus, but we didn't learn how a mortgage works, how a credit card works, and to stay the heck away from payday loans. Um, all of those things I think would be a little more valuable, not to say let's get rid of algebra or calculus, uh, but there does need to be an add uh, to I think what, what's taught in schools to give people a good foundation. You know, that being said, it's really not that complicated at the end of the day. You know, it's not as simple as spend less than you make, but it's not much more difficult than that. It's spend less than what you make, track your spending, and really look out for some pitfalls and be ready to make adjustments so that you can change course if, if circumstances change. Yeah, a segment's really about troubleshooting, uh, tips for troubleshooting your household budget. So I guess the first one is, uh, what, you know, what about minimum payments? Because that seems to be the first thing that people are gravitate, gravitate towards. Yeah, so what, when we uh, survey our client base every year, one of the top warning signs of how people knew their debts were becoming a problem is that they were only able to make minimum payments. So if you're putting your budget together and, you know, your budget, you got room for all of your minimum payments and it looks like a balanced budget and that's a very successful thing, it's not. You've got to realize that making minimum payments is not going to get you out of debt. It's not designed to do that. In some ways, it's designed to maximize the amount of time that you're in debt and the amount of interest you're eventually going to pay. So one of the big pitfalls is when people put a budget together, you've got to have a budget that results in you actually paying down your debt rather than just making the minimum payments each month. Um, you know, we talk a lot about $6,000 of debt can be 40 years, uh, but I've seen people where their credit card statements say, you know, 150 years at minimum payments. And I wonder, you know, who signs off on a statement that's so absurd, um, but you've really got to understand a minimum payment is not going to get you there. Have you got, and I'm asking you this off the cuff here, is there a bit of a formula that you, that a, a regular person could kind of apply to their uh, credit card debt, for example, to figure out the best, the amount to pay off each month, or, or does it take a lot more than just that? No, it's relatively straightforward. You know, we, we generally say use the rule of 60, which means take all of your total unsecured debt, so not your mortgage, not your car loan, but all the other debt that's hanging around, and divide that by 60, and look at that payment. So if it's $30,000, divide that by 60, that's $500 in a month. Are you able to make that payment on your debt? And if you're not, uh, you've got to realize you're just hurtling towards paying a whole lot more interest, being in debt for a long period of time, because where that comes from is if you were to do a consumer proposal, the maximum term you're going to pay is 60 months, and you're probably going to pay a whole lot less than the principal. So if it comes back, oh, wow, I can afford $200 and not $500. Well, if you want to be out of debt inside of five years, you need to do a consumer proposal or something different. You know, you're not going to be able to get out of it just by making those minimum payments. So I think that, that's a good rule of thumb. You know, anytime you're just paying the minimums, that to me, that's a warning sign. Okay, fair enough. Um, what about uh, flexibility in your budget? Uh, should you have some or no, you shouldn't? Well, I think it's essential to have some flexibility because a budget's got to be something that, you know, you're going to see a benefit from. It's not just going to be an obligation, something that, you know, you scrunch your face up and grit your teeth and say, okay, it's budget time this month. So it's kind of like too strict of a diet. You know, you might stick with it for a week or two or a month or two with a budget, but eventually you're going to rebel against it and say, well, I've got to enjoy life a little bit. So, you know, maybe it's 5% of your income. You know, you haven't allocated that, and that's just going to be for miscellaneous. You know, maybe there's something, an impulse buy that's going to make you happy. Um, you know, maybe it's something that you want to save for, and you can put that money away. But having some slack in your budget is absolutely essential if you've already planned how you're going to spend every penny in that month, uh, and there's no ability to adjust. Um, again, you're going to feel pretty despondent when your budget gets broken by some of the, you know, the unexpected things that do happen in our lives. 
Now this, now this one, I'm not sure how what it means, Blair. You've said spending only once and well. How how could you spend more than once? Well, you'd be amazed. Um, so when people get their tax refund, um, you know, first off, you file your taxes and you say, okay, here's the assessment. I'm going to get this money back. And then sometimes people go and spend that refund. Um, and then the check comes in and they say, oh, well, now I've got this check again. I'm going to go and spend that refund. So if there's a windfall, ah. you really, exactly, you really have to be careful that the windfall, you don't spend more than that and you do only spend it once and really consider spending it very wisely. So, you know, consider, do you have the emergency savings account? Do you have the three to six months of expenses to get you through a really tough time? Are you working towards your financial goals, you know, putting money into your RRSPs or your TFSA? That's something that can bring you joy every month when you see those statements, as opposed to spending it on something consumable that's going to be gone maybe before you know it, uh, and then you'll feel a little bit sad. Oh, I had this windfall, but now it's gone. Um, So do be careful any windfalls. You spend them again only once and think about a wise way to spend them. See, that, see, that's one of the advantages of talking to somebody like you, a licensed insolvency trustee from Sands & Associates that gives me so much good information that I wouldn't necessarily know otherwise. Not everybody's going to tell me those kinds of things, even though it's super vital information. So if you want to take some steps, want to take that first step towards uh, living that debt-free life, give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Um, what about saving money, Blair? That's got to be an important aspect to it as well. Yeah, absolutely, Elaine. I think where a lot of budgets really break down is they don't plan for annual costs. So these are the things that don't happen every month, but they do happen every year. So, you know, it might be an insurance renewal that you have to pay up front, maybe for your home insurance or property taxes, for example. It could be vehicle maintenance. It could be vet expenses, uh, professional dues. There's a number of things. They're going to come, you know, as lump sums do in the moment. And if you haven't put that away, if you haven't said, well, you know, over a course of the year, it's going to cost me $250 for my dog or cat. If you're not putting away the $20 a month, well, suddenly you've got a $250 gap in your budget that month, and that can just snowball if you have to borrow the money to, to, you know, pay, to pay that bill in the short term. So make sure you're looking at your annual costs um, and you're amortizing those over time. Um, I think another really good tool when it comes to saving is to use different accounts. Um, so you know, not to have everything go through your daily checking account because it can be tough to keep track. And if you're just saying, I'm going to save what's left over at the end of the month, there's almost never something left over at the end of the month to save save, but if you've got an automatic transfer of savings, you know, even if it's, say, 20 or $50 in a week or a month, um, you know, that can add up quicker than you think. The time's going to pass and that number's going to grow. Um, so having something that's automatic into a separate account is a really important thing to do. Excellent. And in closing, um, I know that you've, you've listed some areas to watch out for as far as being able to track your budgeting progress just going to say, you know, sometimes an app is great, Mint is excellent, but even just writing things down on a sheet of paper or a spreadsheet, it's going to get you there as well. Excellent. Uh, and for more information, give them a call. I'll give them the, give you the phone number, 1-800-661-3030, to get that first consultation, uh, as well as to find an office near you, Sands & Associates, located all over British Columbia. Or if you'd like to go to their website, sands-trustee.com, chock-a-block full of good information. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. 
They're experts in helping you get out of debt. In this segment, we're talking with Stuart Zuckerman, Zuckerman, uh, who went to UBC, got his law degree from UBC uh, some almost 29 years ago. Uh, that's what he studies is family law. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about in this in this segment, the collaborative divorce process as well, which I think is an important sort of piece to add into it. And, uh, of course, there's so many, um, I mean, statistically, the number of people that uh, face divorce and all that kind of stuff, they're just crazy numbers these days. But I know that Blair's got a very specific question to start things off with. First of all, thanks so much for joining us, Stuart. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, and, th- and thanks, Stuart. Um, so, Stuart, you and I have, have spoken before because quite often, you know, there's an intersection between, you know, relationships break down and there's a lot of, you know, debt or hangovers that, that can really accrue to each of the, the parties there. So I see it from a bankruptcy or a proposal point of view. Um, but I know, Stuart, there's been a big change in the law. And this is going back to about 2013. So you might say, well, that's been a while ago. But I just know in my discussions with folks, people still don't seem to be aware of some of the really key differences that changed. So I wonder if we can start there. Can you take me through, um, you know, the new Family Law Act, the new being in 2013, but what are some of the main changes there and what do people need to be aware of? Sure. So the main change to be aware of uh, is when that act came into force in 2013, replacing the Family Relations Act. New provisions uh, were applied to common law couples to deal with assets and debts and to treat common law couples the same way that married couples are treated. Um, And so uh, a common law spouse um, is defined in the act as, as two people of any sex being in a spousal-like relationship for a period of two years or more. So once you're living with somebody for two years or more, they can be called your common-law spouse. And as soon as that happens, they may have, uh, once they become a common-law spouse, they have a right to 50% of the growth in equity of any assets that their partner owned from the date of cohabitation forward. Um, And their partner, of course, has the same right to an interest of 50% interest in the growth of that persons and the claiming persons' uh, assets growth, equity growth from the date of cohabitation forward, and similarly debts from the date of cohabitation forward of either either party uh, can be uh, divided 50-50 between the two spouses. And when, when you're trying to figure out whether someone is a common-law spouse or not, you look at different factors. The court has a discretion to determine that, but things like whether they share their finances with a joint with joint bank accounts or not, whether they one party cooked or cleaned for the other, when, whether one party took care of the other, whether the couple presented themselves in social settings as being exclusive, that they weren't, neither of them were seeing other people, and if that was known publicly, all of those are indicators that the, that the two people are common-law spouses or are acting in a spousal-like relationship. So it sounds like just pure living together isn't necessarily determinative. You could be common-law if you do all those other factors, but you still maintain separate residences. Would that be that's right. You know, if you're if it's a, if a boyfriend and girlfriend maintain their separate residences and one goes back and forth between the residences, he could argue or she could argue that they're not a common law spouse because they're not living together um, in the same uh, place. But there are cases where uh, where the you know a, a couple may have this type of relationship went on for ten years, um, and let's say the husband had a separate condo that he occasionally went to, but uh, nonetheless the parties were exclusive to each other. They, the husband supported the the wife, the wife even, even though they're not married. I'm calling them husband and wife. 
um, and the court found that they were in a common law relationship despite the two residences. So it really depends on the nature of the relationship and, and the issue of exclusivity, whether the parties are seeing other people. Um, if, they're, if, they're ma- if they've made a commitment to each other to, to not see other people, um, then they may be in a common law relationship, even in some cases where there's no intercourse taking place, no sexual activity taking place, so that the couple um, are together, they're financially supporting each other, they're supporting each other through cooking and cleaning, but there's no sexual relationship, that could still lead to a common law relationship, because the couple is, has intertwined other aspects of their lives and are living together. And how big of a change was that, Stuart? So b- before 2013, was common law even you know, a thing, so to, so to speak? Were there any so, protections? So- yeah, before 2013, um, a common law spouse, someone who lived with someone for more than two years, only had their automatic presumpt, presumed right to claim spousal support under the Family Law Act. You could, under the Family Relations Act, you were able to claim spousal support. But in order to claim a property interest in the other party's um, uh, property, that was much more complicated. You had to launch something called a, a, a constructive trust lawsuit or an unjust enrichment lawsuit, and you had to prove every contribution you made during the relationship that added value to the to the equity of the property that you were making a claim against, and then deduct from that any um, bon- any benefits that you received during the relationship. And what was left often was a very small claim, and it was very expensive to bring those claims, so common law spouses were often shut out of the courts. Once they made the new Family Law Act in 2013, it became an automatic presumption that regardless of any contribution, so, so let me give you an example, you know, a, 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 we'll call it John and Mary. John um, meets Mary he moves, she moves into his home that he owned before he ever met her. And let's say the home had a million dollars equity before he ever met her. And this is 20 years ago, a nice home in Vancouver worth a million bucks or a million in equity. And they, they stay together for the next 10 years. And over those 10 years, you know, John earns over 100000 a year. So he earns over a million dollars. Mary doesn't work at all. No children. Mary stays home for those 10 years. And, and at the end of 10 years, the house is now worth $3 million. So the house has gone up by $2 million from the date of cohabitation to the date that the parties separate. And Mary has not contributed a single penny to the equity in the house. John's paid all the bills for both parties. At the end of their relationship, Mary will have a claim to to $1 million, essentially half of the $2 million gain in equity. The home went up from $1 million to $3 million. It's gone up $2 million during the time they're together. She has an automatic presumed right to half of the gain, which is a $1 million. The only thing John can do under the Act is he can argue for something called a substantial unfairness. If he can establish to the court that it's substantially unfair for Mary to get half of the equity growth, then, then that can be overturned. But I must tell you that that you know, under the old Act, under the Family Relations Act, there was a provision about unfairness, and it took a lot of evidence to establish unfairness to get something other than a 50-50 division under the old Act. But now it's much harder because they added the word substantial unfairness, and, and constitutional interpretation says you must give meaning to every word in a statute. So the fact that the word substantial has been added to the word unfairness means it has to be something much more than just unfair for the court to ignore the automatic presumption under the Act for a 50 50 division to be given to both parties. So it's going to be very hard for people to get away from the 50-50 provision on the basis of non-contribution or things of that nature. And I liked, or or not that I need to defend Mary in this situation, but if she looked after the house and cleaned it and cooked and and made sure there was groceries and all those kinds of things, those are the kinds of things that give Mary this... um, 
additional or not additional, but kind of that that presence within that agreement or that uh, the breaking up of the uh, relationship. Am I right about that? Or well, well, the important thing to to realize here is that the that that this entitlement is actually regardless of any contribution by Mary. It used to be I that see. Mary, under the old act, Mary would have to prove every contribution she made in order to earn an interest in the home. Now the court says even if she made no contribution whatsoever, the starting presumption when they show up on the first day of court when they show up the court is going to look at the owner, John, and say, the law tells me, John, that Mary is automatically entitled to 50% of the increase in equity from the date you started living together to the date you separated, um, unless you can convince me that that would be substantially unfair. Um, and so even if Mary didn't lift a finger, if Mary was the laziest housewife in the world and just stayed home with her feet up eating bonbons, she would have an automatic entitlement to 50% of the growth in the equity. So it's not dependent on her having taken care of the home or cleaned or, or done any or raised children or anything else. Okay. Um, just a quick question again for me. I don't, I mean, does, does that sound right to you or fair to you? Or is that a, is that a good, um, is that a good policy to have? Because I don't know. I'm just wondering. And I like, and I like Mary. I like the life she's got going on, but I'm just not too sure if it's, if that's sort of good. I can tell you that it's been, you know, the, the law has been in place since 2013 and I have had many clients who've been shocked um, at the entitlement of their girlfriends, so I'm putting that gr- word girlfriends in quotes, if their partner of more than two years has, has now become their common law spouse, they thought that because they didn't marry, they were protected, that, yeah. that their, the equity in the home was theirs, and they were quite shocked to discover that their, 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 their girlfriend or former fiance boyfriend, or common right? law spouse has yeah. this huge claim because in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, property values have escalated tremendously over the last, you know, from 2013 till now, properties have gone up probably over 200% or something, or 100%. Oh, yeah. And you don't have so, to be in a big house. You could be in a, like a one-bedroom right. condo in kits, and all of a sudden yeah. it's worth... Mm-hmm. Now, there, there have been some decisions that have come out from our from the Supreme Court that have given less than 50% in certain circumstances. So that when the court looks at a situation, if it's clear that, for example, let's say the parties maintain complete separate finances um, intentionally, the, the, you know, the, the, the John didn't trust Mary and didn't want her involved in any of his bank accounts, so he kept his account separate. Mary kept her account separate. Um, and John kept track of the bills he paid. And let's say Mary paid for her own vacations. If the parties lived independent financial lives, that may be a factor that the court can look at on substantial unfairness to say this was not within the contemplation of the parties and it would be substantially unfair because the way they maintained their finances, um, it didn't work that way. Let's say, for example, at year five, uh, the roof collapsed, and even though Mary had a job, let's say, and she was working, um, and she kept her money in her own accounts, that she refused to help John pay for the roof repair, and John had to go out and get a loan to repair the roof and then pay the loan off. That would be a, that would be evidence to show that the parties never had the intention of sharing the equity. So there are always, you know, as a lawyer, and especially as a trial lawyer, I can tell you every trial I go to, it's a it's a storytelling exercise. It's and and every trial turns on its own uh, facts. Even though the law may say one thing, you can judges are always focused focused on fairness, and you can always present your your evidence and, and convince a judge one way or the other what is reasonable and what is fair. But the, the starting presumption of the law is now set to protect common law spouses so that they don't have to prove what contributions they made. There's just an automatic presumption that they're entitled 
without the necessity of proof. Yeah, and this is very interesting stuff, Stuart. We're just down to about our, our last minute or so. I wonder if you, if you can touch on the division of debts, because very often in here uh, on the show, I'm telling people you marry somebody, you don't marry their debts, Visa or MasterCard can't collect from you if your husband or wife incurs a debt, but how does that work when the relationship dissolves? So you're correct, as between, the, as between the couple and their creditors, the creditors cannot sue Mary for John's debts or John for Mary's debts. That's, that's true. But under the Family Law Act, John and Mary, just same as their assets, are equally liable to each other for 50% of the growth in either party's debts from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation. Now, the court will look at how the debts were incurred, and usually there's this qualifier that the debt, presumed qualifier that the debt has to be incurred for a family purpose. So debts for clothing or eating out or groceries or gas or regular living expenses would all be considered debts for a family purpose. Whereas if John went on a bender to Las Vegas and lost, you know, 10000 on his credit card gambling, that's not a debt that the court would divide between the parties, even though it was incurred during the relationship. Mind you, if John and Mary together went to Las Vegas and lost 10000 on John's credit card gambling, and they were both participating in that loss, uh, in that gambling event, then it would be, um, the, the liability would be shared between them, and it would come out of their uh, otherwise entitlement of the share of the assets, so the, the court would adjust the, the asset share that each party gets, the equity out of the home, for example, would be adjusted to ensure that the parties are paying that debt 50-50 between them. Sands & Associates uh, is the place to go, 1-800-661-3030, sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So these... We're going to talk about the difference between consumer proposals versus debt consolidation loans. And you may or may not have heard what a consumer proposal is, so I'm glad we're going to cover that. But debt consolidation loan, this is good, some good information that you think, oh, well, that's got to be the best way to go. Not always, not necessarily. Um, so we're going to talk about the benefits of choosing uh, between consolidating debts using a consumer proposal or that traditional debt consolidation loan. And I think it's a great topic, Blair. Yeah, I'm excited for it as well, because you're right, Elaine. Most people are very aware of what debt consolidation is, and it sounds really great, and we know we're going to talk a little bit more in specifics, um, but most people have no idea what a consumer proposal is, you know, unless they've been through one themselves or have a friend and family member who's been through. Um, but, you know, even myself, I went to business school, worked for an accounting firm for a number of years, and it was only by chance I found out about a consumer proposal because a family member of mine, um, you know, would have benefited from one, and I wish I had known at the time to advise that person. Um, so what a consumer proposal is, is I say it's the most powerful and least well-known means of consolidating your debts without borrowing. So it's an agreement that you make with your creditors, and it's meant to be a win-win. The win to you is that you don't have to file for bankruptcy if you're facing this insurmountable debt load that you know you're not going to be able to pay off. A lot of people think bankruptcy is your only solution, um, but it's not. In a consumer proposal, the win to you is you offer a settlement to your creditors 
that would be better for them than if you had filed for bankruptcy. So most bankruptcies, people end up paying just enough to cover the cost of the administration, you know, maybe $200 a month over a nine-month period, and the creditors end up with no money back. In a consumer proposal, the win to the creditors is you're offering them a reasonable settlement on the debt. So sometimes it's in the range of, you know, 25 to 50% of the debt outstanding. You make that payment with no further interest, with full legal protection, everything's administered through a trustee, and you've avoided a bankruptcy. So a win-win on both sides by doing a consumer proposal. And you also get some great financial counseling throughout the process. Um, Ideally, you work a very, very positive relationship with your trustee. You get some really good coaching so that in the future, you're going to be better equipped to not be in a situation where you need to do a proposal again in the future. Uh, To give some numbers that people could rely on here, uh, you know, I filed a proposal recently for a gentleman. Um, He had about $15,000 of debt. Uh, His income was pretty good. Uh, You know, he probably could have sustained these minimum payments for about, you know, the 15 or 20 year term that would have taken him to pay off the debts. Uh, But he knew that he would be paid the debts back significantly more with the interest charges. So we filed the consumer proposal. Um, He agreed to pay $200 a month over a three year period. So about $7,200 back on the $15,000 of debt. And that's all he paid. He paid no additional professional fees, nothing else. His creditors got a reasonable recovery on the debt. uh, And he walked away happy saying, I faced this head on. I decided this is what I can afford. I don't want to be in debt for 10 or 20 years. Let's get this done inside of three years. And that was a successful consumer proposal. Got it. Now, there's also a difference between how you would qualify for a consumer proposal or a a consolidation loan, isn't there? Exactly. Now, we should spend just a minute explaining what we mean by a consolidation loan. I think most people understand, but just to make sure, uh, traditional consolidation loan is where you combine all your debts into a single settlement. Um, You basically borrow money from one bank to pay off all the other people that you owe money to. And the idea is you're going to save some money because maybe you're paying, you know, 19 or 20 percent or 29 percent interest on a few of these different debts. And in a consolidation loan, you might pay 12 percent interest. So you still pay all the debts back in full, but you generally get a bit of a break on the interest, and that's why it can seem attractive to do a consolidation loan. But right off the top, it's very difficult these days to qualify for a consolidation loan because most banks are going to look for a very high credit score, so someone that's not missing payments and you know their debts aren't maxed out, which you know oftentimes your debts are maxed out, and that's why you're looking for a consolidation loan. They're going to look for very consistent level of income that could top your self-employed individual. Oftentimes, they're going to be unwilling to approve a consolidation loan unless you can pledge an asset as collateral. So, you know, if you've got an investment account that has a bunch of money in there, uh, if you've got an asset like a car that's fully paid off, it's worth a good amount of money, they're going to want to take security on that asset. And if you don't have those things, it's going to be difficult to get approved. Uh, And finally, and this is a huge pitfall that we often touch on, but oftentimes banks will say, okay, we'll agree with this consolidation loan, but we want a co-signer. We want another another pocket to dig into in case you don't pay. Uh, And that's almost always a bad idea because you're just enlarging your debt problem to increase, to include the person who's now agreed to co-sign the debt. So consolidation loan can sound great in theory, but in practice, it can be quite difficult to actually qualify for one. How do you qualify to do a consumer proposal? Well, that's one of the best parts, Elaine, is the only qualification is you have to have some debt. You have to have more than $1,000 of debt, and that's a pretty low bar. You know, we don't do many proposals for less than, you know, five to 10000 usually for a lot more, but you have to have some debt that you can't pay. Um, and that's about it. You have to have the desire to want to do a, a, a consumer proposal. There's no minimum credit score. There's no asset requirements. All you need to be able to show the trustee is here's my monthly budget. Here's 
here's how I can afford to sustain myself, meet all of my minimum obligations, you know, for rent and shelter, uh, for food and whatnot. Um, and then you can file a consumer proposal as long as the trustee believes you'll be able to make that payment. And a lot of the time, people have been scrimping and saving, you know, not eating well or getting behind on their rent because they're paying all their debts in full plus interest. When they do a consumer proposal, the best part is they're paying no interest and they're paying the part of the debt, the portion of the debt that they can actually afford. So quite often, the settlement's as low as 25 cents on the dollar, 30, 35 cents on the dollar. Um, and almost always, these proposals get voted yes to be accepted by creditors. Because again, when a consumer proposal is done through a trustee, it's legally supervised, legally sanctioned, and the trustee is signing off on everything, saying this is in everybody's best interest. It's a win-win situation. We recommend the creditors accept it, and we think the person will be able to perform it. So you just have to have the debt and the desire, and you'd be able to file a consumer proposal. And see, and that's why dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee like Blair Manton at Sands and & Associates and, and his staff in all of their offices all over British Columbia uh, just makes so much more sense because they're legally bound to do the very best thing that they can do for you, whether it be uh, actually sitting down and going through with a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy or giving you proper counseling as to not get into either to get out of the situation you're in and not get into it again. So I, I just can't stress it enough. And I'm just going to throw on the phone number two right here, 1-800-661-3030. Um, the next part of this uh, segment is talking about the debts covered. Can you can you run through that a little bit in our time? time that we've got left. Yeah, so that that's huge, Elena. And again, it's really simple. A consumer proposal basically covers all of your debts. It can cover um, unpaid taxes. It can cover GST. It can cover standard consumer debts, where a bank might say, okay, we're going to pay off you know these debts to XYZ, but you're on your own with government debts, which is usually what happens. A consumer proposal includes any debts that you have, all consumer debts. So it's a really all-encompassing financial situation. Uh, and what's great is a consumer proposal doesn't need to be accepted by all of your creditors. You know, if you had a small amount owing to the government and you thought there's no way they're going to ever vote for my proposal, all you need is 50% by dollar value of the people that you owe money to to say yes. So if you owed a credit card 5000 and the government 4000 if that credit card company says yes to a proposal, the government is dragged along with the same settlement. They're legally bound and can't do anything separate. That's a huge power that doesn't exist when you do a consolidation loan. It often doesn't include all of your debts. Got it. Now, the most one of the most important pieces of all of this is talking about what it costs, what it costs to have a licensed insolvency trustee do the work or go through a consolidation loan, because there is a cost to you as a result. Yeah, when someone files a consumer proposal, they generally pay nothing up front. They just start making the monthly payment in the consumer proposal, and the costs are essentially borne by the creditors. So if someone was talking about, you know, doing a proposal, as I said uh, earlier, for the, I believe, $200 a month over 36 months, that's all that they pay. The trustee gets paid out of that amount, and the balance goes to the creditors. So there's no upfront cost to meet with a trustee, and whatever proposal payment that you work out you can afford, that includes all of the costs. It includes your two financial counseling sessions. It includes the trustee dealing with all the creditors, collecting the votes, getting everybody on side. And that can be just a night and day difference to filing a, uh, to getting a consolidation loan where you're paying the debts in full as opposed to just the portion. You're still paying interest as opposed to no interest. So it can be at the means of, you know, maybe a quarter of the payment of what a consolidation loan might be. And a proposal has got to be finished within five years. That's the maximum term under the law where a consolidation loan, they can sometimes stretch to seven, eight, even 10 years if you don't pay them off on schedule. So it's quicker and it's cheaper than any of the alternatives. 
Such good information. And I just want to mention, too, the website, sans-trustee.com. I've gone through it a number of times uh, looking for answers on different questions that I've had. And there's just pages and pages of well-written, good questions and really thoughtful answers to those to give you information. Uh, the, uh, another way of going about it, of course, is giving them a call, 1-800-661-3030, to get that first free consultation as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.